welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice in your local church. My name is David Meredith, I'm the Mission Director for the Free Church of Scotland based in Edinburgh and I'll be your host. If you like what you hear, then please like, share and subscribe. Spread the news. Well, my guest today is Dr. Mike Kruger. Mike is the president of RTS, that's Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think if it wasn't for Scots people, North Carolina wouldn't have as many people in it as it does just now. But uh, uh, Mike is also the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament uh, and Early Church. Mike, very welcome to the old country. Thank you, David. Great to be with you and great to be uh, back at least verbally in the old country. So uh, I love Scotland and it's great to be with you. Yeah, there's, there's a real controversy just now in the UK over the question, where do you come from? But I guess with a name like Kruger, um, <laughs> you're, you're from maybe Europe, your people. Yeah, so my it's, it's a German name. So my, my uh, great-great-grandfather immigrated from Germany in the late 1800s in the United States. So... Um, and then that's just on one side of my family. And then the other side of the family has different European roots. But um, yeah, that 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 uh, you know goes back a long way. So okay, so if Scotland is not in your genes, I believe it's Scotland is in your heart. Tell us why. It is in my heart, and that's what matters more, I believe, um, <laughs> because uh, some may know that I did my PhD work there at the Divinity School at New College at the University of Edinburgh back. In the late 90s and early 2000s, studied under Larry Hurtado there in New Testament. And just my wife and I had a delightful time uh, getting to know the people of Scotland and particularly the people of Edinburgh, made lifetime friends and uh, really fell in love with it. And our daughter, actually, our oldest child, our daughter Emma, was born there in, in Edinburgh. So we actually have a a, a lot of reasons to, to love that spot. So it's um, got a fond place in our heart. Okay, well, it's great that you've got at least one Scots girl in your family. Um, <laughs> okay, so, I mean, we, we last spoke face-to-face. I was in in your office. Uh, I preached at Christ's Covenant. And that morning, in fact, you were taking a Sunday school class. And surprise, surprise, you were talking about canon. And it was a really... <laughs> Interesting. Now, uh, I've looked down the list of books that you've written, early texts of the New Testament, the question of canon, how the second century shaped the churches, gospel fragments. Your PhD was in a tiny little bit of scrap paper, which uh, very few folk have heard of, that little uh, thing that you did your PhD on. It sounds fascinating. So you're known for text. You're known for canon. But I want to talk to you today largely about another book you've written called Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Mike, uh, first of all, have you been kind of surprised how this book has created so much interest? Yes and no. Um, I think, you know, most people probably wonder why I wrote a book like this. And I think, you know, your introduction there raises that question. I'm so into text and canon. Where did this come from? And, you know, look, I, I tell people, yeah, my, my field is text and canon, and, and that's what it still is. And in fact, I'm writing another book right now, actually, on that subject. But but I'm also a leader, and I'm also a, a seminary president, and I've thought a lot about leadership in the last five years or so, and honestly been very concerned about some of the trends I'm seeing. And uh, I felt like someone needed to kind of bring those up and start talking about them from a 
reformed evangelical perspective. And so that's what I've tried to do. I think in some ways I'm I'm surprised by the reception of it because, you know, a lot of people seem to have been paying attention. But then another level, I'm not surprised because it is a real issue that is seeming on a lot of people's hearts. And so in one level, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, expected. Yeah, again, the book is called Bull of Pulpits, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Pulpit. It is published by Zondervan. So, folks, I don't want you to Google it right now. Uh, you're going to listen to the podcast. But, you know, I'm getting mine in the Mound Bookshop in Edinburgh. And please buy the book. It's really worthwhile buying. Um, before we, we go into that, some, some general stuff, Mike, um, the kind of motto of the Free Church of Scotland just now is a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. Think a little bit about that concept of a healthy church. Can you think of the churches that you were brought up in, that you visited, that you attend? Just one or two marks of how you as a, a guy in the pew and a family in, in the pew, what would you regard as marks of a healthy gospel church? Oh, wow, that's a, that's a great question and, and a big one, right? I mean, there's a lot of things I think we would immediately say for a healthy church. Certainly you'd want sound doctrine. They've got to be preaching the gospel and, and built on the word of God. You'd want a, a, a church leadership structure that that provides uh, a basis for how it operates with uh, accountability, but also with uh, you know a biblical model of what church officers should be. Um, and so I think there's some 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 basics right out of the gate. But here's the thing I've learned as I wrote this book, and and certainly learned just in in leadership in the last decade as a president here, and that is. There, there's a whole aspect of church church health that has to do with church culture and uh, what you might call church ethos or church values, which, yes, of course, are related to doctrine, but they go much further than doctrine, and, 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 they, and they're intangible in ways that doctrine is not so intangible. And this is what I think is really tricky about a healthy church is that it's not as simple as saying we want a church that is doctrinally sound because there's many churches that are doctrinally sound that I think we would agree are profoundly unhealthy. So what 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 is that extra thing we're talking about here? Um, and and I'm trying to put my finger on it, honestly. Um, but I mean, I think I would mention some additional things. This isn't exhaustive. I'd I'd, I'd want a church that that exhibits uh, a posture of humility, um, and meaning that, that, that even though they're confident in God's truth, they're also willing to hear feedback and willing even to hear critique from 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 people who who raise concerns. I think I would I'd want a church culture that's not authoritarian um, and that is trying to lead with grace and patience and gentleness um, and not from the top down. And I think I'd want a church that's very much about proclaiming grace, um, not that we don't care about law or that we don't care about obedience. Of course, we do, but that you lead with the gospel. Um, and so those are some additional factors I would I would throw out there. And, and again, there's a lot more to say than just that. Yeah, I talk a lot when I'm, I'm teaching and talking to ministers about conflict, and one of the things I encourage them to do is develop healthy conflict. You spoke there about critique, which is a kind of synonym, I guess, for healthy conflict. What's the difference between complaint, uh, which comes from a bad place, and critique or healthy conflict that comes from a good place? Yeah, well, you you talk to anyone in ministry for more than six months, and they know what it means to be critiqued, right? Um, ministry comes with that, and it comes with a lot of that sometimes. And and here's the honest truth: not all critique is is um, is accurate. Not all critique is well motivated, and not all critique is helpful. Um, 
And what I try to teach our students here at RTS, and I, I think I'm sure you're doing the same there with the, with the candidates in the churches and the, the free church, is you've got to you've got to learn to take critique well, even when it's not just, even when it's not well done, um, and not develop a posture of defensiveness and retaliation every time someone critiques you. Look, I mean, it's it's easy to retaliate and be defensive, even if the critiques are accurate, but it's particularly um, easy to be retaliatory when the critiques are inaccurate or unjust. But that's exactly what we're called to do. That doesn't mean we just go along with those critiques. There may be a place to gently push back against them. But I think what people want to hear is that we genuinely listen to them. We're not going to try to destroy them merely because they bring up things. And we want to be able to receive it uh, with 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 grace and patience. So that's a really tough thing to do, uh, but I think that 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 that's going to create those healthy disagreements that you're describing. Yeah, and it's to have the humility to analyze critique because you know behind every criticism there may be, and there probably is, an element of truth. Now that may be one percent, that may be ninety percent. You've just got to analyze, you know, what you apply, what you take away, and, and that takes real humility. Um, but let me just go a little bit more focus into bully pulpits. Um, spiritual abuse, one of the big questions is define it. So how how do you define it in your book, Mike? And have you will, will you stick with that definition? <laughs> Yeah, well, this is the, the 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 very important place to begin is making sure we get our definitions straight. And I wanted to be very clear in the book, and I hope I have been, that you know we don't want to just label any old thing spiritual abuse because that that's not helpful. Um, not every conflict is due to abuse. Not every disagreement is uh, because someone's abusive. And I also acknowledge in the book that we live in a culture that's very uh, you know very sensitive to any. Uh, disagreement or conflict so much so that if you just say something that's true in the Bible, sometimes people claim that's abusive. And uh, that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, churches have real authority and pastors have real authority, and it's important that we acknowledge that. At the same time, I feel like there's a different concern out there too, which is that I feel like some churches are so intent on protecting their authority, they never actually ask if it can ever be misused, if it could ever be abused. And so I work really hard in the book to define spiritual abuse more than I'm able to do here. But the short version of my definition is that's when there's a spiritual leader, a spiritual leader, by the way, who does have real authority, who wields that authority in a way that's that's harsh, heavy-handed, authoritarian, and domineering to those under their care. Um, and when you think about some of those words, particularly the word domineering, that's a word that actually in our English Bibles used a good number of times, and it comes from an underlying Greek word. And I think it captures also a trend throughout all of biblical history. So I labored hard to make sure that when I define the term, I'm, I'm yes, it's a modern term. We all agree with that. You don't, you're not going to find the term spiritual abuse in the Bible. You're not going to find the term spiritual abuse narrowly in, in, in uh, say, the fifth century. But I think the concept is very much in the Bible and one that we need to uh, make sure we we pay attention to. Okay, you come at it from a perspective of a New Testament scholar from text. You know, uh, Diane Landberg's written a great book. She comes from a context of counseling and, you know, psychology. Other guys come at it from a leadership, strategic thing. Do you think that your perspective, and, and I think it does, um, gives a little different angle to this? I hope so. Um, I think part part of what I've noticed in this debate over the last number of years is that it— 
if I could just say, you know, reformed evangelical circles as a, as a big category, I know that's a big category. People mean different things by it. But most of the people who've been talking about spiritual abuse up to now are not in our theological spaces. Um, and I think, therefore, because they come from other theological traditions, they can be dismissed, ignored, or just overlooked. And, 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 and maybe some of the reasons for that are fine and, and valid. And I think some critique can be made maybe about prior works on spiritual abuse. But what I think maybe helps make my book different is that I am coming from inside the Reformed evangelical space as one who loves it and embraces it. And in addition to that, I'm, I hope I'm coming from a perspective of someone who has some knowledge of not only biblical scholarship, but Reformed church history. And I try to show how spiritual abuse categories existed in the church history. In church history. And one of the classic examples I bring up is James Bannerman, who in the 19th century is a classic work on ecclesiology, maybe one of the most sort of, you might argue, you know, robust conservative reform works on it. And he actually mentions numerous places this concept of spiritual tyranny um, or spiritual oppression, which I think is very akin to what I'm arguing for. So yeah, I, I hope my angle can be useful in a way that maybe other studies have not been. Right. There's been an absolute epidemic of this over the last few years. Has it increased or is it a reporting issue? Are you know, is it in the rise, or are more folks just more confident now to report it? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I've done a lot of podcasts on this topic since the book came out, and I and it's 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 interesting how many people I speak with ask the exact same question you just asked because I think everybody wants to know: is this is this a new problem? Is it worse than it's been? Is it getting worse? Here's here's the answer: I don't know. There's there's no hard stats on this. There's no hard data on this. Um, we're at the very front end, in my opinion, of learning about this category. Um, so I don't have anything other than my own anecdotal sense. You could call it my spiritual gut, okay, which <laughs> admittedly is fallible and has great limitations. But I'm going to share what my spiritual gut is when my instinct is, yes, I think there is something in the water right now. Um, and I think it's more than reporting, although I think that's part of it. I think there's <clears throat> something about the modern world we live in, which is affected by social media, but which is affected by a post-Christian world that I think has led to churches wanting leaders that act this way. And I think this is something that I tried to address in the book. It's not as simple as saying that we have leaders that act this way. We have churches that want leaders, at least at some level, who are like this. And I think that is what's telling. And I think that says more about where the church is than it says about where individual leaders are. I think you could always say it's it's just a couple bad apples. Well, that's probably true in some instances. But why is it that we have a church culture that wants a leader who's really tough, strong, and can fight our enemies, you know, sort of go bare-knuckle uh, brawling with people? I think that says a lot about the cultural moment we're in. So I think those are the kind of people that end up abusing folks in the church, uh, sadly. Okay, well, how does it go on and folk just never speak up? I mean, we have a phrase in the English language, hiding in plain sight. <laughs> now, you know, you take, you know, the Mark Driscoll thing, there's a podcast, it's well documented, a lot of stuff is in the public domain. You know, his unique selling point was brashness, abrasiveness. And in the UK, with a lot of young guys putting on check shirts, strutting the stage, just doing the same thing. Yep. So something that was palpably wrong and abusive was mimicked by a lot oh, of young, yeah. young guys. Why Why? Why is that? Is it kind of group speak? Are we captivated by it? Are, are we hypnotized? 
or is the abuse so powerful and so pervasive that it can actually take on almost a toxic resonance? I think there's two layers to every leader. There's the public persona, which we can see on the stage. And we might have our own concerns about that right out of the gate, right? You mentioned some of those, sort of the the brashness, the arrogance, the the sort of um, pompousness of it. But then there's the way they treat people behind the scenes. Um, and even if we might feel uncomfortable with a leader that's brash and, 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 and a little bit arrogant, we don't really know what to do with that. And if their ministry is growing, we sort of let it go. What we don't realize is that sometimes those same personalities really mistreat people in their own spaces, and you never hear about it until many years later. With the Driscoll case, what's fascinating is, even though everybody knows about it now, we forget how long he did that before it blew up. I mean, it was years and years and years of him mistreating people before it blew up. And this is one of the things I learned in all my case studies is that leaders like this, it takes time for their ministries to fracture um, around this behavior, usually 10, 15, maybe even 20 years before it just kind of disintegrates because it builds up so many dead bodies behind their ministry, eventually it catches up with them, but not at first. And so that those two layers are the problem. We need to find a way to understand how he's treating people in his church beyond what we see in the public space in order to hold these people accountable. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just don't know that our accountability structure is is, is tracking with it. And I, and I think a lot of churches turn a blind eye to it because of the success some of these ministries have. Okay, we talk about Stockholm syndrome. I don't know if you've ever given this any any thought, but you know, I'm I'm thinking of one particular church just now where I think the pastor's abusive. The there's no complaints, and the congregation seem to be compliant and actually growing. Um, have you observed a kind of Stockholm syndrome type scenario in some churches? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And I don't use that term in the book. Although looking back, maybe I should have. That's probably a pretty good suggestion, David. I, I maybe, maybe in a second uh, version, I'll uh, make an adjustment there. But uh, oh yeah, I think people become numb to a certain leadership style that they assume must be godly, and they assume must be the way it is. And I think sometimes reformed evangelical spaces are particularly susceptible to this because we rightly put a premium on church authority. Okay, so we acknowledge that church authority matters. We tend to give a lot of respect and deference to our leaders. Uh, and I think there's an element of that which is good. But I think the weak side of that, if we're not careful, is that we don't ever sort of raise questions about whether what we're seeing in our local church is actually healthy. And so what I've learned over the years is a lot of people endure this year after year after year. And it's not until later they realize how, uh, how unusual it was. And how 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 strange it was, and how bad it was. It's it's equivalent to growing up in an abusive house. If you grow up with an abusive parents, and 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 they mistreat the the brothers and sisters in the family, and you've never been in a different family, which most people haven't, you don't even know what's normal. And it's not until you get outside and look back in later that you begin to see how dysfunctional it really was. And so I think that's beginning to happen. I think some people go 10, 15 years in a church where they realize, wow, I've probably been in a church that's very, very unhealthy. Yeah, and I'd really encourage folk who maybe think they are in an abusive situation, just reflect and, and talk to some folk. Um, moving on a little bit, I want to talk about what's been known as the celebrity culture within evangelicalism, and it certainly is a thing. Now, 
what what I'm trying to figure out in my mind is there is a place for gifted preachers, you know, guys who are competent in the scriptures. They're, they're just in that, they've got that little bit extra. And I've no problem with that. What's the difference between a gifted popular preacher and a celebrity preacher? Is the fault with the guy or is the fault with the church culture? Oh, yeah. So I, I do bring up in my book, of course, the problem of the celebrity pastor. I've got to put uh, a little bit of blame where blame is due here. And I think, you know, American evangelicalism has to own the fact that we've probably exported this to the world in ways that are very unhealthy. And I'm not suggesting, therefore, that, you know, the UK or any other country is not responsible for their own leaders. Of course, everybody's responsible for their leaders. But I think we have projected a certain way that ministry should look now. And, and, and truthfully, the celebrity pastor coincides with the rise of social media. That doesn't mean there weren't famous pastors in the past. Of course, we all know there were. But the sheer number is mind-blowing now. And also the idea that everybody can now uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, want to become that, like you aspire to be that because you really could be that with enough blogs, enough Twitter followers, enough of a platform that now everybody's sort of out there throwing elbows and wrestling to try to become the next great thing. That I think is new. So here's what I've suggested in, in prior conversations. I've suggested there's a new level of what you might call competition between churches. It's like a marketplace that never existed before in the same way where you're jostling for celebrity status and also for members and for numbers. People will do things in that kind of context they would not have done in other contexts. I think it creates a very unhealthy environment. Now, you ask the question, who's to blame? Is it the church or the celebrity pastor? And it's both. Certainly, the celebrity pastor is responsible for their actions. Um, but the church is the fan base cheering them on. They are they want a guy like this. You know, they they are they are propping up people like this. And then when there's scandals, they defend people like this. And so I think there's there's got to be a macro overhaul of the way we think about leadership in the evangelical church. And I tell you what, if we don't start rethinking it pretty soon, it's going to slip away from us in some very scary ways. And this is one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I hope we can start taking a deep breath and rethinking the, the models we're pushing. Yeah. And do you think this is one of the causes of the decline of a church in that it seems to me that the church is looking for gaps in the market and get that particular section in the market, the market being largely evangelical people who are in the tribe who speak the language. And one of the sort of collateral damage of that is that they're not reaching out to a phrase that sadly we don't hear anymore, the unsaved, the unconverted. And so the mission edge of the church is being blunted because of this obsession with getting more share of the market. Is that unfair? I think there's an element of truth to that. Uh, certainly, we would all acknowledge that there's big churches out there with well-known pastors who are healthy and doing good work. And you even ind indicated a moment ago, we're not suggesting every uh, gifted pastor is a celebrity pastor. We're not suggesting every big church is unhealthy. Of course not. Um, but I think your, your your concern is valid, which is if, in fact, churches become obsessed with platform, prestige, power and, and 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 attracting people, would that not take away from the real calling of the church, which is to reach 
the lost with the gospel. And it seems like churches perhaps are more concerned with even just taking members from other churches than they are really uh, advancing uh, into new places. Now, I know exceptions to that. There's some great churches I have in my brain right now, I won't mention, that I think are just doing some excellent mission work, um, even though they're, 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 they're what we might call famous churches. But I do think we have to always guard against that. So, you know, my, my hope for the book was just simply put on people's radar just these categories, just so that elder boards and leaders can just say, all right, what do we need to watch for here? What what sort of tone do we need to be careful that we were avoiding? What sort of message do we want to make sure we're not sending? And and to be just reflective. And I think up to this point, there's not been a lot of that. And I, and I hope there'll be more uh, going forward. Yeah, I think our listeners must know. I mean, whenever they think of America, they think of big churches. Even in reform circles, they think of, you know, the big white steeple PCA churches. The average church in the U.S. is not a lot bigger than the average Scottish church, 50 to 70 people. Um, can you kind of underline the fact that when we're talking about bully pastors, we're not just talking about the big names here. A bully pastor could be in Smallville, Mississippi, and he could be up in (laughs) the highlands of Scotland. Totally, totally. In fact, one of the things I always remind people is the definition of a celebrity pastor is not a pastor necessarily with a big church. A celebrity pastor is a pastor who's the big fish in their own little pond and the pond may be, in fact, quite small, but if they're the big show, and if they're they got people under their boot, um, and they feel like they have the authority to sort of do whatever they want to do and squash people, then if their church is seventy five people, they can be a celebrity pastor who who is in danger of bullying people. So, so yeah, I sure hope the the, the takeaway from the book is not every church over a thousand people needs to read this. I think I hope. Any, you know, irrespective of size, it's it's a danger for all of us um, to to fall into some of these patterns. In fact, some of the worst cases I I studied had had been in fairly modest size churches where a person just had people under his had the, his knee on their on their necks for generations, and no one had the guts to speak up. And everybody who did speak up pretty much got their lives destroyed by this yeah. guy. We've focused, and I'm not sure if the book focuses on the bully pulpit. Now, I'm also thinking of a couple of churches where the minister, the pastor, has been chewed up by bully elders or bully deacons, depending on on your churchmanship. Um, Is that a thing? Oh, it's definitely a thing. In fact, in my introduction, um, I, I make it very plain that you know, when you talk about bully pastors, no one's suggesting for a moment that that pastors aren't sometimes mistreated by their churches. Um, and maybe we could even use the word often mistreated by their churches. Sometimes churches bully their ministers and mistreat their ministers, and sometimes elders mistreat their minister. Yes, absolutely that happens. What I want to make sure we don't do, though, is use the fact that that happens as an excuse to not address the bully pastor issue when it comes up. My fear is that because sometimes churches mistreat the minister rather than the other way around, some people use that as an excuse to, to turn a blind eye to the abuse. And I'm like, no, both issues need to be addressed. Now, my book was only addressing one of the issues, but maybe someone should write a book about churches that mistreat their pastors. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to, uh, to to see a book like that out there. Um, and I'm sure it would make all the same qualifications I try to make in my book. And surely they wouldn't argue that, that in, in such a book that, that that pastors never mistreat their churches. Now, in America, the analogy I use here, and this isn't so much a, 
issue in the UK. But in America, it's very similar to the way people uh, view abusive police officers. Okay, so in America, we've had a string of cases where police officers misuse their force and use excessive force. Whenever you bring up pastors, or sorry, police officers using excessive force, the defense is almost always, well, you're going to make the job harder for cops. You don't like cops. And um, what about all the times that criminals mistreat cops? But see, my point is all those things are true. Yes, criminals mistreat cops and probably more than cops mistreat criminals. And it does make the job harder for cops when some cops abuse their authority. But that doesn't mean we never address abuse of police officers. We can't just ignore it. Um, and I say the same thing is true for for uh, abusive pastors. Okay, so we're talking about church culture, just cross over a little bit to church polity. This podcast is listened to by folk from different traditions. You and I are Presbyterians. Uh, a Presbyterian would say, yeah, Mars Hill, typical, independent, evangelical. Huh. But we're Presbyterians. It never happened to us because we we have a structure. <laughs> We've got an accountability structure. You know, uh, the Presbytery is a corporate bishop. Uh, comment. Oh my gosh! If if I if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I would be uh, much further ahead on book royalties. I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian, and as are you. And we both think church government matters, and it does. And I'm sure that you and I, if given the opportunity, would make our case for why we think Presbyterianism is the most healthy and biblical form of church government. Okay, all those things can be true, but what I always wanted to guard against in my book is this idea that merely having a good polity is itself a reason to think it could never happen to you. That's just simply not the case. In a number of cases I studied, it was people with fairly developed and hierarchical church polity that ended up having significant abuse cases. In other words, it is not true that that it's only independent churches that deal with this. Uh, You know, in the UK, there was quite a bit of Anglican instances of this, you know, um, here in America, I've seen Anglican instances or Episcopal, but also Presbyterian instances. So what I argue is that, yes, you need a good church government, but you need a church government that's actually informed and aware of the issues. And when it comes to spiritual abuse, we've probably got some work to do there. We need to be training our, our leaders to know what to look for, how to spot it, and how to understand it. If you don't understand how to spot it, understand it, then it doesn't matter what your polity is. You're not going to be able to come to grips with the problem. Okay, so you've got a pastor, let's just call him Reverend John Smith. Apologies to any Reverend John Smith out there, but <laughs> Reverend, John, Reverend John Smith is is an absolute bully. Um, he is confronted by his presbytery. He's taken aside. The next week he comes and he says, guys, thank you for drawing this to my attention. I can see this exactly. I have been a bully. I'm going to go aside from ministry. I'm going to sort myself out. And I really... I, I I can see this. That's not what I hear, Mike. Mm. You know, I, I I don't hear folks saying thank you. Is it? It seems to me that a lot of these bullies, maybe most of them, are narcissists. They yeah. do not. They do not see the problem. Is that a case in some of the cases, all of the cases, or a majority of the cases? Oh, I think your observation is is quite accurate. And, and and here's the way I would say it. There's two layers to it. One is it's it's actually pretty rare in my own studies that denominations or a or a church body would come to the full realization, oh, you're you're an abusive pastor. Lots of times yet that never happens. <laughs> the person's abusive and the and the church protects that person. 
and defends them. Okay, but leaving that aside, let's assume the few instances where the church does recognize there's a bully pastor and does confront that bully pastor, what tends to happen? Well, here's the thing that's 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 very sad, is true repentance from bully pastors who end up finally getting confronted is extremely, extremely rare. In fact, in all the case studies I did, I, do, I can't think of a single instance, not even one, where a person had this 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 track record of abusive ministry was confronted. It came out they were abusive, and they they repented, acknowledged the abuse, and sought help. Not even a single instance. That doesn't mean there's no hope. We can pray for these folks, and there, there, I'm sure there's some cases where someone did repent. I just didn't know about it. But I do think it's true, though, that the kind of person that has this long a track record of mistreating people tends to be the same kind of person that, when confronted with the behavior, is pretty unrepentant about it. And that I think is 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 actually the evidence they're abusive. The evidence they're abusive is typically because they they have the type of disposition that will never take correction, uh, or 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 challenge. Yeah, because I mean, I guess most of us can look at something in our ministries where we think, oh, I was too hard there, or yeah, I really overstepped it. But the difference between you know that one-off instance and uh perpetual habit would you say that was the difference oh absolutely and i say in the book very plainly it's hard 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 to be a pastor we're going to make missteps we're going to make mistakes we're going to we're going to hurt people we're going to we're going to say i wish i hadn't said it that way i wish i hadn't said that at all you know we're, we're pastoral ministry is, is this is going to happen to you in pastoral ministry you're going to have to apologize to people what what the difference between that isolated one-off instances of, of of making missteps versus a bully pastor is first the long pattern of destroyed lives. Second, the level of which those lives are destroyed are different. It's not just that you said something that kind of upset somebody or you came across in a in a bad way. Th- these people's lives are are generally wrecked by these bully pastors. And then thirdly, the bully pastors never acknowledge it or repent. So if you have, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, man, I, I've made my own relational, relational missteps, just the fact that you're saying that at all and hopefully apologize for it is, is probably a pretty good sign that you may not be um, the kind of person we're describing here. Okay, well, let's, uh, as we move into land, try and get a little bit more positivity in into the discussion. What about someone who's maybe looking at church and saying, well, you know, this, this proves that the church stinks. What do you say to someone who's really cynical about the church, and yet she is the bride of Christ? She is a place of beauty. There are more good pastors than bad. There are more yes. healthy churches than unhealthy churches. So can you say something to alleviate the torment of the church cynic? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I, I knew when I wrote this book, um, and one of the things I actually said in the preface is that some might take it, as just another instance of church bashing, right? That we got nothing better to do than critique the church here. And this is just, you shouldn't do such a thing. I, I hope that I've shown that that's not my motive, that I love the church, that I love pastors. I'm a pastor. I, I want what's best for the church. So when it comes to that sort of question, I think there's two extremes we want to avoid. One extreme, of course, is you want to we want to avoid the person who's the, or we want to keep from becoming the person who's the perpetual cynic, right? Who only finds the negative, who only critiques, who's always bashing with no, no no positive contribution, usually they're outside lobbying grenades over the fence, right? That's, in its own right, highly problematic. But there's the flip side, too, which is the, 
if you really love the church, don't ever critique it. If you really love the church, don't ever bring up anything that needs to change or grow. I think that's equally problematic, though, and we never even treat our friends that way. What if I went to my friend to confront them over a sin pattern, and, and the friend said, well, if you love me, you'd never bring these things up. That, that, that's crazy, right? We, we don't treat individuals that way. We, if we love them, sometimes we do bring up hard things they need to change. Um, and so it's the same with the church. So we got to find a way to balance those two extremes. So the hypothetical person you're describing that may be skeptical about the church, I think one of the things you want to avoid is trying to pretend nothing to see here. You're just making stuff up and you're just saying things that aren't true. No, we need to own it. We need to admit it. We need to repent of it. And then we need to tell her, though, even in the midst of that fallenness, God is at work in special ways through his bride and his bride will uh, be sanctified and the gates of hell will not stand against her. And so I think we need to figure out that that balance um, as hard as it is to do. Okay, and finally, and almost finally, a lot of guys who are thinking of ministry in the UK are really frightened because of this issue. You know, there's been so many stories of chaos in the Anglican tradition, other movements. Guys are really frightened of being open to this accusation. Could you just say something to them about the ministry that's... Yeah, it's scary in one way, but it's not so scary in other ways. I have so much sympathy for that. I really do. And I would tell the folks listening who are thinking about ministry or maybe even in ministry and are worried about this that, that I share their concerns. We we as ministers take it on the chin unjustly a lot by our culture and even by other Christians. Um, and so, yes, that makes our job harder. Um, but I think anybody who reads the scriptures knows that this is why ministry callings are such a distinctive and high calling. It is a calling to to risk. It is a calling to sacrifice. It is a calling to give up your lives. And we might have to endure that risk. At the same time, though, it's also an opportunity for self-reflection. What I do in my book is in the epilogue, I talk directly to the Christian leader and say, hey, you may not be an abusive leader, but just do some self-reflection to make sure that you're not on a track headed in that direction. And so all the all the the chitter chatter about abuse in our culture can be scary, but it also could be an opportunity to say, you know, how am I doing as a leader? How do I view authority? Am I being the kind of gentle shepherd that Christ wants me to be? And to and to and to take extra steps to make sure we're embodying uh, the the type of leadership, servant leadership that Jesus calls us to. So so yeah, it's scary, but it's also a chance to to even grow if we're willing to reflect upon it. So I hope. Hope those people still willing to press through and, and do the ministry. I know it's hard, but hopefully when we do it, we can be more like Jesus when we do. My God, it's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, first of all, for what you do for the church. RTS Charlotte is becoming known for a center of excellence for, you know, what you do, teaching campus ministry, um, counseling, as well as, you know, robust theology. You mentioned, you know, Bannerman there, obviously still rooted in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition. <laughs> uh, we look forward to seeing you back in the old country. And thank you so much for this book, which is a real gift to the church. Just to remind you again, it's called Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Pulpit, published by Zondervan. In fact, if you look up the the original definition of Bully Pulpit, it's really interesting. Um, it was Roosevelt, wasn't it, that used that yeah. of, the, of the White House? Yeah, it's and, a reference to the uh, president's office, actually, historically. But uh, I kind of riffed off the title <laughs> for my book, so... 
um, it seemed like it would be a, a, a catchy title, so we went with it. Yeah, so, so. Your, your your next book could be in Bully Presidents, but let's not go there. That's a great way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. Have a great day. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast. Um, tell your friends about it. Share it with others. You know, talk to one another about this issue of bullying and get the book. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.